The Battle of Tamai was fought on the 13th of March 1884 between the British and the Mahdist armies in Sudan. During the three-hour battle, the British were to lose over 100 men killed and a similar number wounded. It was the costliest battle they fought in the Mahdist War. And despite it being a victory, for five minutes it all looked like it was about to go horribly wrong. As for one of the only times since the Napoleonic Wars, the British square was actually broken by the fearsome Bajor warriors. This is the story of the Battle of Tamai, 1884. I've covered the background as to why the British were in Sudan in my previous episodes about the Battle of El Teb and Gordon of Khartoum, so if you want to get all the details, you might want to listen to those episodes before this one. But here is the very top line. At this time, Sudan was ruled by Egypt, over whom Britain had recently developed considerable control, even though it was nominally part of the Ottoman Empire. Bit confusing. In the early 1880s, a Sudanese insurgency against the Egyptians had erupted, led by the Mahdi. As the Mahdist forces, sometimes called dervishes, swept across Sudan, Egyptian control evaporated. The Khedive of Egypt appealed to Britain for help in restoring their rule, but British Prime Minister William Gladstone was loath to get embroiled in a costly war in Sudan. So instead, he convinced the Egyptians to evacuate the country. British General Charles Gordon was employed by the Khedive to proceed to Khartoum to help organise an evacuation of Egyptian troops and civilians from the capital. Meanwhile, after a failed attempt by the Egyptians to relieve their besieged garrison at Tokar on the Red Sea coast, Gladstone had sanctioned the use of British troops to rescue and evacuate them. An expeditionary force of just over 4,000 British troops landed at the port of Suakin on the Red Sea coast under the command of Major General Graham. On the 29th of February 1884, as his men marched towards the besieged garrison at Tokar, they were confronted by the Mahdist army at El Teb. That army, made up of local Bajor warriors, was led by Osman Digna, a former slave dealer and now one of the Mahdi's chief lieutenants. The Bajor, a nomadic people, have inhabited this area adjacent to the Red Sea since, well, the time of the ancient Egyptian pharaohs. Principally armed with razor-sharp swords, daggers, spears and elephant-hide shields, swift of foot and fanatically brave, they had successfully defended their homeland against all comers since Roman times. Their elaborate hairstyle would earn them the nickname from the British of Fuzzy Wuzzies. Not a term they would tend to use today, the British would soon learn to respect their major enemies, as you're going to find out in a little while. At El Teb, the disciplined rifle fire of the British infantry, together with their artillery and then a charge by the Hussars, had resulted in a British victory. Osman Digna withdrew his forces into the mountains, leaving 2,000 of his warriors dead on the battlefield. But Osman Digna was far from beaten. He merely moved north, blocking the route from Suakin on the coast to the River Nile, and defiantly dismissed General Graham's messages requesting his surrender. If General Graham was disappointed by Osman Digna's defiance, he was equally disappointed to discover that the garrison at Tokar, who he had been attempting to relieve, had surrendered to the Mahdists. At the urging of Charles Gordon in Khartoum, General Graham determined to defeat Osman Digna to both blunt the Mahdists' success in Sudan and to open up a possible evacuation route for Gordon from the Sudanese capital. And so the British marched north, towards Osman's camp at Tamai. In the late afternoon of the 12th of March, the First Black Watch occupied a zariba, which is basically a fortified position protected by acacia thorn bushes and boulders, 
about two miles from the Mardis camp. As darkness fell, the rest of Graham's army of 4,000 men joined them. The British soldiers slept on the ground that night without blankets, whilst throughout the night, Mardis snipers fired on the Zariba. Private Sheldon of the York and Lancaster Regiment was shot through the head as he slept on the ground. At 05.30, Revali was sounded, and the British soldiers ate a breakfast of hard-tack biscuits washed down with either tea or coffee, before parading at 8am for their advance on Osman Digna's camp. Graham organised his force into two large squares. He would accompany the second square on the left of the advance, under Major General Davis. This square comprised of the Black Watch, front left of the square, the York and Lancasters, on the front right, and the Royal Marine Light Infantry forming the rear side of the square. The Naval Brigade, with their Gatling and Gardiner guns, would accompany them. Behind his square, Graham positioned the 10th and 19th Hussars, whilst to his left were the Mounted Infantry. To their right, as they advanced, would be the square of the 1st Brigade, under Colonel Reavers Buller, who had won the Victoria Cross just a few years before, during the Zulu War. His square would consist of the Gordon Highlanders, front left, the Royal Irish Fusiliers, front right of the square, and the King's Royal Rifle Corps, holding the back line. Buller would be accompanied by the Royal Artillery with their guns. The mounted infantry rode forward to scout a ravine about 900 yards in front of the British lines. This dry riverbed was anywhere between 20 and 60 feet deep, and as the British scouts moved closer, they came under a hail of fire. Before they turned for safety, they were able to peer into the ravine. It was filled with thousands of Beja warriors. At the Battle of Tamai, Osman Digna's army numbered somewhere in the region of 10,000 men. As the mounted infantry retired, they were attacked by Beja warriors who swarmed out of the ravine and bounded towards them, some firing captured firearms, others rushing forward to engage the horsemen with their swords and spears. 23-year-old Lieutenant Percival Marling looked behind to see another member of the mounted infantry, Private Morley, lying on the ground wounded from a gunshot. His comrade, Private Clift, was standing next to him trying to protect him as the Sudanese rapidly bore down on them. Lieutenant Marling turned his horse, galloped towards the stricken men. He was joined by another private by the name of Hunter. Together they managed to slump the injured Morley over Marling's horse, and then Marling, together with Hunter and Clift, walked their horses gently 80 yards to safety. To go back under those conditions was brave. To actually walk your horse 80 yards with Beja warriors trying to attack you is coolness of a gold medal standard. Maybe not surprisingly, Lieutenant Marling was awarded the Victoria Cross. Not that he was overjoyed. In his private diary, he recorded his indignation that neither Private Hunter nor Private Clift had received the award. Now knowing what he faced 900 yards in front of him, Graham ordered the squares to advance. Now, just pause for a moment and imagine being one of those soldiers advancing in the British squares, trying to keep in formation whilst negotiating acacia thorn bushes and boulders, the whine of Sudanese bullets, the roar of your own artillery, the dust made by 4,000 men rising into the air, limiting your vision, the sounds of war cries from thousands of beiges hidden in the ravine somewhere in front of you. And through that dust and smoke, frenzied Mardis warriors charging at your line, and the crash of Martini Henry rifles as they were repulsed. The smoke from the British rifles helping to decrease the visibility even further. But suddenly, the Beja warriors in the ravine had the shock of their lives. 
the Black Watch, in their grey tunics and kilts, charged at them. The Berger weren't used to this. Most of their enemies ran away from them. They didn't charge them. Arriving at the edge of the ravine, the Black Watch opened fire on the ranks of Mardists below. There is still some conjecture as to whether Graham's order to advance hadn't reached the York and Lancasters, or whether they were just slower off the mark than the Highlanders. But that rapid advance by the Black Watch had opened up a dangerous gap at the front of the British square. What happened next could have put Tamai into British history books for all the wrong reasons. Thousands of Bajor warriors clambered out of the ravine and charged into the broken British square. The British position was suddenly very perilous. The three front companies of the Black Watch, who were on the edge of the ravine, were cut off from the rest of the British square. The York and Lancasters were now being attacked from both outside of the square and inside too. They fell back on the Royal Marines, and the disciplined British square became a tangled mess of men fighting for their lives. Even General Graham came within inches of death as a Bajor lashed out at him, but hit his horse instead. The crews of the naval brigade manning the Gutling guns were overwhelmed. The gleeful Mardists seized the guns and turned them on the British, only to find that the Blue Jackets had removed the sights and locked them, therefore making them useless. Private Thomas Edwards of the Black Watch happened to be on attachment to the naval brigade, so he'd missed the mayhem that was engulfing his regimental comrades on the edge of the ravine. Instead, as the square disintegrated, he had now been leading a mule laden with ammunition to number four gun when he saw it being overrun, leaving just one naval officer, Lieutenant Walter Almack, fighting for his life. Even as Private Edwards rushed to support him, he saw Almack struck down by one of those razor-sharp Bajor swords, almost severing his arm. The critically wounded officer was then set upon by three warriors who hacked him to death. Private Thomas Edwards was actually an Englishman, born in Buckinghamshire, but he was in a Highland regiment, and he acted with the full fury of a Highlander. He waded into the Bajors, bayoneting two of them and then parrying a sword blow from the third with his rifle. The parry didn't entirely work, as the sword blade slipped down his rifle and cut across his fingers, nearly severing them. Somehow, he managed to fire a shot at his attacker, and then, grabbing his ammunition mule, he pulled it back to the British lines. He was the second British soldier at Tamai to receive the Victoria Cross. Out at the front, on the edge of the ravine, three companies of the Black Watch were now engaged in their own desperate battle. Mardists were scrambling up the banks of the ravine and used their swords to slash the Highlanders' legs below their kilts. All bar three men and a platoon from B Company were wiped out. Two Blackwatch NCOs had their rifles pulled out of their hands by fanatical attackers and resorted to using their fists to defend themselves before being hacked to death. Private Drummond took on one of the very few mounted Bajor in the battle. He ducked a sword blow from the horseman before bayoneting him. What he didn't realise was that he'd just killed Osmond Digna's cousin, and immediately he was charged by the dead chieftain's servant. He was saved by Private Kelly, who shot the servant, only to be speared himself by another warrior. Drummond somehow managed to fight his way back across the square to the regrouping British, bleeding profusely from three spear wounds. Meanwhile, another soldier from the regiment, fighting his way back to the lines, bayoneted a sword-wielding Bajor. He drove his bayonet in with such force that the muzzle of his gun actually entered the impaled dervish warrior, and the Highlander was forced to pull the dead man along with him for several yards before he could dislodge his rifle and bayonet. The initial confusion in the British square was short-lived. Victorian military discipline was now swinging into practice, as officers reformed their men to face the oncoming Mardists. The back line of the square became almost like a, well, the thin khaki line, 
centred around the York and Lancasters, with the Royal Marines on their right and the survivors from the Black Watch on their left. And as that back line of the square faced the Mardists, they started to deliver well-controlled, disciplined volley fire. They were supported by the Mounted Infantry and the Hussars, who provided covering fire with their carbines, and by the Royal Artillery 9-pounders. By now, the other square, under Buller, had come alongside and were adding their fire into the Mardist ranks. The dervish attack stalled, and Graham ordered his extended line forward. Advancing across the bodies of Bajor warriors and their own comrades, with a cheer, they reached the abandoned guns. Survivors from the naval brigade swiftly unlocked them and turned them on Osmond Digna's men. Facing withering rifle fire, and now that machine gun fire, the Bajor attack ran out of steam and they started to retreat. But this wasn't a terrified flight in front of the British. These warriors were Bajor warriors. Many, almost with contempt, simply sauntered back towards the ravine. Others continued to rush forward in small groups. Some played dead, and as the British passed, they sprang up to resume the fight. Even injured Bajor lying on the floor in agony defiantly swung their swords at the invaders. Once more, the British arrived at the edge of the ravine, this time it was Buller's square that reached it first, and Buller ordered them to descend and then proceed up the other side, whilst that reformed first square covered them. Buller's square continued their advance up the far side of the ravine and descended into Osmond Digna's camp. It was deserted. Ahead of them, the British could see thousands of Bajor warriors retreating into the mountains. The Battle of Tamai was over. The Battle of Tamai, fought on the 13th of March 1884, might have faded into history, but in the three-hour engagement, the British had lost 110 men killed and a similar number wounded, more than any other battle during the British Mardist Wars. Not even at Omdurman would they lose this many men. And almost all of the British dead were from the two regiments at the front of that square, the Black Watch losing 60 killed, whilst the York and Lancasters lost 30. The Sudanese, on the other hand, had suffered nearly 2,000 men dead, and according to Osmond Digna, a similar number wounded. In the end, it was a convincing British victory. But for five manic minutes, the battle hung in the balance. They were probably the longest and most terrifying five minutes of those British soldiers' lives. But it proved a pointless victory for the British. The relief of Tokar had failed, as I said earlier. Osmond Digna was still at large, with thousands of men in the hills. And on the very same day as the British victory, the Mahdi finally besieged Gordon in Khartoum. Despite Graham's enthusiasm to send the cavalry across the desert to Berber on the Nile and thus open up a supply route to Khartoum, Prime Minister Gladstone refused. In fairness to Gladstone, he was sceptical of what 850 cavalry could really achieve deep inside hostile country, especially as Osmond Digna was still in a position to cut the supply route from the Nile back to the Red Sea there'd be a good chance that the 850 British cavalry would be stranded and besieged at Berber on the Nile. And just because Gordon seemed to think that being holed up in Khartoum was a good course of action, Gladstone was blowed if he was going to sacrifice hundreds of British cavalry in a similar venture. So Graham was ordered home. Within three weeks of the Battle of Tamai, his army had left the Red Sea coast of Sudan. Just a small force was left to protect the port of Suakin. In 1886, the Khedive of Egypt installed a British officer in Suakin with the rather lofty title of Governor of Eastern Sudan and the Red Sea. I say rather lofty because by then Khartoum had fallen 
and all that was left of the Khedive's Egyptian Empire in Sudan, well, was the Port of Sukin itself. The governor's name was Lieutenant Colonel Herbert Kitchener, and he has quite a role to play in our story of the British in Sudan, not least at the Battle of Omdurman. Osman Digna, like Kitchener, would be present at the Battle of Omdurman, and after his capture, he'd live into his 80s, dying in Egypt. Lieutenant Percival Marling, VC, would later serve in the Boer War, and would rise to the rank of Colonel. He died in his native Gloucestershire in 1936. Thomas Edwards, VC, lived to the grand old age of 90, dying in 1953. He's buried at St Mary's Church in Chigwell. The Bajor, thanks to their hairstyles, had been nicknamed Fuzzy Wuzzies by the British soldiers, yet their bravery and fighting prowess had earned them the respect of those same British soldiers, and then some. Armed with swords and spears, they had taken on Queen Victoria's mighty British army, and as Rudyard Kipling admiringly wrote, for all the odds again you, you broke the square. And amazingly, the Sudanese Mardis would break the British square again ten months later. And that story of the Battle of Abu Klea, made famous in the film The Four Feathers, will be the subject of my next talk. Well, thanks for joining me today, and I hope you enjoyed that story about the Battle of Tamai. Check out all my other stories from British and British military history on my channel. And you can get even more exclusive stories by joining my supporters club. Click on the subscribe button. And thanks to Bill, Reese, and Ragnar for joining this week. Until next time, thanks for your support. Keep well, and I'll see you very soon.